and welcome to Skeptically Curious. I'm your host, Ryan Rutherford. This is a podcast where I endeavor to know more and think better by talking to knowledgeable guests about fascinating topics. So please join me on this journey of exploration and edification. Observing that artificial intelligence, or AI to employ the generally accepted abbreviation, has considerably impacted many aspects of modern life, including the workplace, transportation, medicine, commerce, communication, and in some countries, even the administration of justice, is to say hardly anything interesting at all. Beyond everyday applications, artificial agents now reign supreme in games once thought off-limits to machines, including chess, the game show Jeopardy, and Go. Human hubris has taken even further knocks with the often quite astonishing feats achieved by non-biological, silicon-based systems in composing music, writing poetry, and creating art. As far-ranging as AI's reach has already been, often not fully appreciated by those making habitual use of automated systems and algorithms in their daily lives, with astonishing improvements achieved in some cases over surprisingly short timescales, the coming decades promise to deliver even more profound transformations liable to touch just about all facets of society. While the scope for opportunities of a profoundly consequential and generally positive nature is wide, including some that are at present barely conceivable, there is also the very real possibility that the systems currently being constructed, or ones that will be in the future, could be so powerful that they pose a serious risk to humanity. Figures such as Elon Musk and the late Stephen Hawking have repeatedly warned of just this kind of disturbing likelihood. Few scholars have devoted as much time to seriously exploring the myriad of threats potentially inhering in the development of highly intelligent artificial machinery than Dr. Roman Yampolsky, who was very gracious in making himself available for an interview. To quote from his official page, Dr. Yampolsky is a, quote, tenured associate professor in the Department of Computer Engineering and Computer Science at the Speed School of Engineering, end quote, which is housed at the University of Louisville. He's also the founder and current director of the Cyber Security Lab. Furthermore, Dr. Yampolsky established the field of AI safety engineering, often shortened simply to AI safety, which builds on the friendly AI work of Eliezer Yudkowsky and has more than 100 publications to his name, including many peer-reviewed academic articles and books. The man is so intensely productive that I was only able to read a small sample of his work in preparation for this interview, and a few papers we discussed are linked to in the show notes. As I mentioned in our discussion, whatever disagreements I might have with some of his positions, Yampolsky's articles are invariably provocative, engaging, thought-provoking, and, unusually for an academic, entertaining. They are definitely worth a read, and I hope to become even better acquainted with his work, including a paper that was published the week of our interview. After the preliminary inquiry into his background, I asked Roman Yampolsky to explain deep neural networks, or artificial neural networks, as they are also known. One of the most important topics in AI research is what is referred to as the alignment problem, which my guest helped to clarify. A famous attempt to illustrate the nature of the problem in question is a thought experiment by Nick Bostrom, one of the major contemporary figures devoted to exploring existential risks facing humanity, in which he envisions a very powerful paperclip machine that eventually converts the entire world to paperclips. We discussed this thought experiment, or intuition pump, as philosopher Daniel Dennett would describe 
describe such intellectual endeavors. Before moving on to his work on two other vitally significant issues in AI, namely understandability and explainability. I then asked him to provide a brief history of AI safety, which as he revealed built on Yudkowsky's ideas of friendly AI. We discussed whether there is an increased interest in the risks attendant to AI among researchers, the perverse incentive that exists among those in this industry to downplay the risks of their work, and how to ensure greater transparency, which as you will hear is worryingly far more difficult than many might assume based on the inherently opaque nature of how deep neural networks perform their operations. I homed in on the issue of massive job losses that increasing AI capabilities could potentially engender, as well as the perception I have that many who discuss this topic downplay the socioeconomic context within which automation occurs. That is to say, too often AI theorists and researchers do not fully address, or even outright ignore, the imperatives associated with any systemic dispensation. For instance, a fully automated economy could liberate humanity from the need to work, which could result in an efflorescence of creativity and human flourishing across a host of domains. In a context where people need to work for a living, however, which is the prevailing contemporary economic system, automation is a harbinger of potentially vast social dislocation and therefore fearful apprehension. After I asked my guests to define artificial general intelligence, or AGI, and superintelligence, we spent considerable time discussing the possibility of machines achieving human-level mental capabilities. This implicates neuroscience, the nature of consciousness, and the current state of the technological art. He has written a fascinating paper proposing that artificial systems that perceive the same visual illusions as humans should possibly be considered as conscious entities. This is an intriguing approach to detecting qualia, or phenomenal consciousness, in an artificial system. I challenge Jampolsky to make the case for the capacity for inorganic, silicon-based computers to ever attain consciousness in the way we understand this in biological entities, which sparked, as you will hear, the most contentious part of the interview. Indeed, this is probably the most contentious interview I have conducted. But throughout, we both maintained a posture of good-natured, constructive dialogue, which is the way conversations should ideally be conducted. As I explained, there is an increasing schism between neuroscientists and the AI community on this question of emulating a brain in a computer. I defer to the view of some neuroscientists whom I cite in arguing the prospect of achieving artificial general intelligence, and therefore the possible danger such a system represents for humanity, hinges on a flawed metaphor that permeates much of the AI field, and has done so since virtually its inception, namely that brains are analogous to computers. This way of thinking not only leads to assuming that AGI is a realistic prospect, but concomitantly posits consciousness can as readily exist in silicon as it can on a biological substrate. The term often employed to encapsulate this perspective is substrate independence, which even some staunch materialists subscribe to even though, as far as I can see, this view necessarily infers mind-body dualism. Although Yampolsky did prompt me to reconsider the perhaps overly narrow criteria I employ in ascribing consciousness, I still maintain that he and others in the field of AI research continue to underestimate the complexity of biological brains and the significance of a certain type of material nature as a prerequisite for the kinds of consciousness humans and other non-human animals possess. 
Relatedly, those who believe the achievement of artificial general intelligence is primarily an engineering problem that can be solved with greater computing capacity, or compute, are making a fundamental error. Nevertheless, I still thoroughly enjoyed this portion of our discussion and valued hearing his perspective. In the final stretch of the interview, I asked him about the impressive language-based system GPT-3, which, as he pointed out, can do mathematics, taught itself chess, and learnt languages, all without being expressly programmed to do so. I asked him for his view on countryman Garry Kasparov's opinion that Alpha Zero, which taught itself to play various games rather than any specific one, and went on to defeat Alpha Go, which had itself defeated the world's best Go player, is the first truly intelligent artificial system. I asked him about the prospects of quantum computing to potentially achieve AGI, and lastly, what he considers to be the greatest AI risk factor, which according to my guest is, quote, purposeful malevolent design, end quote. A terrifying prospect as the kinds of nefarious actors who would create such systems are limited solely by how sick they are. This was a far-ranging interview with many concepts raised and names dropped, and which furthermore sometimes veered into various weeds that some might deem overly specialized and or technical. Nevertheless, I think there is plenty to glean about a range of fascinating, not to mention pertinent, topics for those willing to stay the course. With that, I present Roman Yampolsky. Welcome to Skeptically Curious, Dr. Roman Yampolsky. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you. But uh, before we get into the main topics of today's episode, if you could just give us some of your background, either uh, personal, professional, educational, whatever you think is worth knowing. I'm a computer scientist and I work in AI safety. Specifically, I concentrate on more advanced systems we don't have yet, futuristic AIs. So... It's hard work since we can't really run experiments. We don't have those systems yet, but it seems like there is a lot of theoretical analysis we can do, and hopefully it will help us develop safer systems in practice. To prepare for the interview, I try to read a number of your papers, but you've been incredibly prolific. I think ResearchGate listed something like 221 publications. I don't quite know how they divide them, but it, you know, so I must apologize in advance. I mean, even reading a dozen of your papers is only a fraction of your output, but it's, it's singularly impressive. Uh, and I learned so much. But uh, for today's discussion, I'd like to focus on the risk aspect. I know that's been a big focus of your work. But but we'll have to also naturally talk about some technical issues and forgive me for not being an expert. This is why I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you who, who are in this field. So I'm trying to educate myself and my listeners through the podcast. So I'm not an AI person, although I'm very interested in the field. So maybe on one of these kind of basic technical issues, I suppose, if you call it that. But as you point out in a paper, the unexplainability and incomprehensibility of artificial intelligence, 
intelligence. You note this uh, paradigm shift in artificial intelligence, which I know is a very broad term, to what are now called deep neural networks. And I was surprised to learn how new this actually is, because, I mean, Jeffrey Hinton, who was one of these pioneers, you know, it has a long history, you know, going back to Frank Rosenblatt with the Perceptron in the 50s already. But Hinton, you know, when he sold his company for $44 million or auctioned it off, that, that was only in 2012. So this really is quite new. So could you maybe explain when we talk about deep neural networks or artificial neural networks, what exactly is that? So that's our attempt to kind of emulate how human brain works. We don't fully understand everything about it, but it seems then we put together a lot of small, simple elements structured kind of like we think neurons in a human brain work. Uh, it just magically starts working and throwing more compute and more data at it makes it get better and better. So we have no idea why it does a lot of what it does, but it does things similar to how human brain performs. It even makes similar types of errors. So that's the main approach we use today. For 50 years or so, AI was uh, attempting to do things through logic, through symbolic manipulation, kind of like a mathematician doing a mathematical proof. And uh, there were some interesting results, but it never kind of scaled to problems we really care about, uh, pattern recognition. Uh, so that's the paradigm shift you described. Yes, and I mean, a big part of how it now works is through big data, which itself is enabled by larger and larger computational capabilities or compute, I know is the more technical term here. Now, the unexplainability and incomprehensibility in this paper, I think they're vitally important issues, and they're particularly important, as you point out, with the way deep neural networks work. But before we get into those specifics, they are sort of nested in a larger issue that is one of the most important for AI research, which is called the value alignment problem or issue. If you could maybe just sketch out broadly what that is. I know that that's sort of something that's quite simple to in a way to explain, but it's immensely important. I don't think people appreciate often how important it is for AI. Sure. So I think I'll start by telling you what a control problem is to begin with. So we're creating this more and more capable artificial agents, but we would like to still be in charge. We like to tell them what to do. But uh, we want to decide if what they're doing is correct or if they should be doing something else. And there is a number of proposals for how to accomplish that. How do you tell something smarter than you what to do? How do you stay in charge? And historically, there's been a lot of proposals, which we now know are kind of dead-end proposals, like three laws of robotics. You can't just give it a set fix of law, uh, fixed set of laws and hope that will work out. So value alignment is this idea of can we teach AI to kind of value the same thing we as humanity would find valuable? And it's hard because we don't really agree on what we value. Mm. It keeps changing. It's a lot of fuzzy terms like love and good, and they're not well defined in any programming language. But that's one of the approaches to solving what we call the control problem. 
Yes, and what I, I love about so much of your work is that although you're officially a computer scientist or, you know, supposedly a technical person, you have to consider all these philosophical issues, right, of, you know, moral philosophy, among others, and ethics. So you, you really have to be attuned to a wide range of interdisciplinary concerns. I know that that's something of a buzzword, but that's why it's really a, a pleasure to read a lot of these kind of ideas and how you think through them. And of course, someone that you quote a lot, and I know he's prominent in this field is Nick Bostrom from the Future of Humanity Institute. And, and his thought experiment is of the paperclip machine. So maybe you can briefly explain what that is and how that's supposed to illustrate the control problem or value alignment problem. So there is many ways hmm. those systems are anticipated to fail or can fail. And a lot of them are difficult to explain to general public. And this is something you can easily visualize. So you tell a system to maximize factory output. You say, okay, I need profits, make, make this product for me. And the system kind of goes a little beyond what is normally expected as reasonable supply and just starts converting everything into the product. I've also heard you um, in another podcast equated to the King Midas idea. You know, you say, I want to be able to turn everything into gold, but then you can't sit down, can't hug people because they're just turning to gold. The thought experiment does help us focus our minds on the problem, I think, in quite a vivid illustration. But there are some problems with it as well. I mean, Rodney Brooks is quite dismissive and he's someone that we're going to probably talk about because he has a different take. Because in the real world, a paperclip machine, even if it's the best ever invented, as soon as it starts going a little bit wrong, we can just switch it off. So there's a way that, yes, it focuses the mind, but it also can maybe, I think, exaggerate the problem. But anyway, let's move on here to that paper in particular of the unexplainability and incomprehensibility, and particularly as that pertains to deep neural networks, but then as a very serious potential problem, right? All right. So if you don't understand how decisions are made, you may be happy with the decisions, but it may be relying on information you don't want it to include mm. for legal reasons. For example, in case of bank loans and such, there is uh, certain protected groups. You cannot rely on race information uh, to make decisions, but the system may be heavily using it in uh, how it decides to get a loan or not. So for legal reasons, even you have to know exactly how the decisions are made. People have a right to have decisions explained to them, but that's only a small part of it. Obviously, if you kind of start believing this is magical black box and it's always right, it's very easy for it to slowly drift away in terms of making good decisions for you. It may be manipulating you. Whoever is controlling this machine can easily put some back doors in and now all the decisions are kind of skewed in a certain direction. But this is a really serious problem and one that I think will only get worse, wouldn't you say? Because if you're having people, and you explain this well in the paper, who are technically adept, so this happens in all fields that demand any kind of specialization, an engineer, a doctor, lawyer, whatever. But now you have the ostensible experts that they can't even understand how the systems they're programming or creating work. They rely on their outputs, which can be very impressive and have a lot of 
predictive accuracy, but they don't actually know how they're working. Like black boxes is how you describe them. And I think that's a good nation. So as these penetrate into more areas of society, doesn't this pose, I mean, if nothing else was a problem about AI, if we ignore, let's say, all the other issues and just that, doesn't that pose a very severe problem for how our society is going to be organized in the future, potentially? No, no, it's described the issues. You don't really understand if decisions are non-biased, you don't understand who's uh, maybe influencing the decisions. But as you said, as uh, the systems become more capable, the gap between even the smartest human and the system increases. It's impossible or at least very, very difficult to communicate over that gap. So we don't really get good explanations. And if we got them, we still don't fully understand, don't comprehend what is being said to us. Yes. And I think, you know, as you also, you just enumerate a few of them, but these are major areas such as the finance world, the justice system, potentially hiring. So these aren't small subsets of what happens in society, that they are really immensely consequential and such that I don't even think people realize often how many areas of life are now being decided essentially by these these algorithms. Of course. Um, And if you take it to the next level, they will start deciding morally issues. Mm. And again, you have no explanation, but the system tells you this is how you should live your life. This is the right answer. This is just like religious uh, fundamental approach. You don't understand the reasons, but the book tells you you have to follow certain instructions. And whatever you think it's good or bad, uh, there are certain issues with such approach. Absolutely. And the output is one issue. And well, I suppose at the three different levels, the input, the calculation or computation and output, they all have their own problems because what is the data you're feeding into the system? As you said, it's incomprehensible, the decision modality or or mechanism. And then of course, the output, precisely because the other steps maybe haven't been paid attention to, you end up with a decision that you think is the best, but the chains along the way could be deeply flawed. So yeah, there's definitely something to worry about. Now, on to again, more broader areas, I was surprised to read in going over some of your papers that you coined the term, and maybe you and a few others, of artificial intelligence security engineering, which is often shortened now to AI safety, sorry, safety engineering, I beg your pardon, mm-hmm. AI safety or AI safety. And what struck me was, again, how recent that is. That's about a decade ago. And so I guess my question is, you can take this any way you want, or there's multiple aspects. So maybe you can explain how that came about, but also then relatedly why this didn't emerge sooner and why there aren't more people devoted to the issue of safety engineering or AI safety more broadly. So people had concerns about that issue for a long time. Historically, usually it fell under the AI ethics domain. Eliezer Yudkowsky, probably the one who originated most of the recent work in this field, he called it friendly AI, creating friendly AI. Now, it's not a bad term, but it's kind of difficult to sell it to engineering community. So I was looking for something a little more formal, a little more easy to sell. So safety and security of intelligent systems was a very natural choice. And uh, it looks like a lot of people found that usable. Today, there is another shift. I think a lot of people try to switch to value alignment as the name for the field. But to me, it's more of a sub, sub area of research within the field. Yeah, so safety being the broader conceptual framework and and value alignment being one of them. A specific approach to doing it. 
I heard you in another podcast, The Future of Life, from a few years ago, but I only listened to it recently, as I said, to prepare. You did mention that although there were, when you, I think, formulated the safety engineering idea, there weren't very many researchers focused on this area, but now it's increased quite dramatically in recent times. Is that still the case? Do you see a dramatic uptick, let's say, in people interested in this field? Well, a percentage increase is huge. We went from like zero to like a hundred. So that's impressive. Mm -hmm. But a uh, hundred researchers is still nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands doing AI development. Yes, you did bandy about those figures. Now, again, I've read your papers from kind of like 2012 up until more recent ones. So it was quite striking the low figure for risk. And as you point out, many of them aren't even computer scientists. So they don't really have the technical know-how. They're often from ethics or other areas or philosophy, let's and say. That, so and also there is a split between kind of narrow AI concerns of today. People worried about unemployment, uh, algorithmic bias, versus uh, more kind of futuristic, super intelligent concerns. And that uh, sub subgroup of people is not growing as fast as general ethics, uh, mm -hmm. social justice area. Yes, I suppose it makes sense. Well, I suspect we have some disagreements on some of the AGI superintelligence, not just me, some others. So that's what I want to kind of keep for last. I find that a fascinating field, but a very contentious one, I suppose. But in the Clearer Thinking podcast, when I first really heard of you with Spencer Greenberg from earlier this year, just a few months ago, you focused on, on these two broad areas, which I thought was really good to help us understand kind of the issues we're facing. So one it was really a broad risk approach, which we'll get to. And the other one is specifically about AI researchers. And you noted to Spencer Greenberg that there's kind of a perverse incentive for current AI researchers in downplaying the risks of AI to their investors and the general public for the reasons of funding. And you cited, I believe it was a billion dollar deal that OpenAI had just recently secured. And this is another issue so that even if there are risks that experts know about, they are not going to want to advertise this because then of course it could affect their funding. So maybe if you could just discuss that. Like in any field, you have bias, right? Personal mm. bias. Uh, tobacco companies, oil companies <laughs> have certain interests, mm. not necessarily because they're particularly evil people, but if mm. you work in a certain industry, there are certain expectations. And uh, it's very hard for someone to say, okay, I'm working on it, I need more funding, but there is a good chance it will have horrible consequences. Hmm. It's just uh, how it works. So uh, I have a paper actually out this week about AI risk skepticism, where I try to review different uh, arguments people give for don't worry about AI risk, it's not a problem. And I reviewed something like 100 papers and wow. I gave up. There is another 300 I have. I just don't have the resources to consider every reason why someone doesn't care about this. But uh, there is definitely a lot of very weak arguments why we should not worry. That paper sounds uh, really intriguing. I, I would love to read that. But be honest, Roman. I mean, do you actually write all your papers or do you have a deep neural network that's helping you out? Because your productivity seems rather superhuman to me. So I do have papers I collaborated on with uh, Microsoft Spell Checker and uh, <laughs> GPT-2, not free yet. Uh, but they are a small percentage. Interestingly, 
Those papers were cited in a paper I co-authored with a Nobel Prize winner in physics, so they seem to be very interesting, at least for the novelty of having artificial co-authors. I do publish a lot, but there is kind of two types of papers. There is the papers I do on mainstream topics with my students, for example, and then papers I do alone on superintelligence and there is not that many of those. Unfortunately, I'm still not as productive as a super intelligent machine, but I try. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you're not just looking at a small sample of your publications, then there's no hope for the rest of us. But who, just out of interest, who is the Nobel Prize winning physicist? I am horrible with names. I probably don't remember your name right now. And <laughs> likewise, if you want to look it up, you can see it's a list of uh, people in physics and uh, he's one of the 30 authors in that paper. It's in Physica oh. Scripta. Okay, well. Wow. I can provide a link if you're interested. But, no, yeah. please, uh, please do. I, I said I, I'm going to make it my mission to definitely deepen my acquaintance with your work because I learned so much. Now, My personal weakness, I will take a few years before I remember anyone's name. We get new people starting to work with us, and I'm like, hey, you first couple years, then I usually put effort in. I won't take offense that you forgot my name is Ryan, but uh, I'm just uh, yes. taking a step. It's there. I can read it, so it kind of <laughs> helps to cheat a little. It does, yeah. Okay, well, you're quite right that this is a general problem of the industry, just to stay on this for a moment. Now, I believe I'm better with names, but I don't want to misattribute. I listen to a lot of podcasts as well as reading. I believe it was on the After On podcast maybe two years ago. So this is Rob Reed, and he was talking to Naval Ravikant. I believe it was him. I know he did interview him, and his point about your point about the potential risks of you know AI researchers is that essentially outsiders, but people maybe like your yourself who have technical competence or even not those with express computer science background should kind of be allowed to go into these industries and you know kind of be taught everything they know or at least check the data check all the info to foster transparency what do you think of this kind of idea it seems a bit radical but if there are threats potentially for all of humanity why should only a few ai researchers have access to these black boxes and be the only ones who knows what's going on well, it's a good idea to make things open. It's just not helpful. You can look at the billion feature neural network all day long. You're not going to understand anything. That's the whole point. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this is a deeper problem of just the technology itself. It's not like there is like a line of court where it says <laughs> do evil and these outsiders will discover it and that solves the problem. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I suppose. So uh, I guess he was maybe also talking about some other potential issues. But yeah, it's just the nature of, of deep neural networks. So it's a kind of a wicked problem to solve because you don't even know what the problem is, as you said, necessarily until maybe. Right. Such approach is useful for checking data for explicit bias for things of that nature. Mm, okay. Well, I think this is very helpful for a general person who doesn't understand this, which includes most people, but your rather dispiriting conclusion is that those who have men's technical knowledge don't understand it either. Now, which I thought was very striking, the other observation you made was you use the analogy of the early days of the automobile, sort of, let's say, the turn of the 20th century. At the time, there was something of a competition between electric vehicles and ones that used petrol or gasoline, the combustion engine. Well, 
Well, do you remember this? Maybe you can take us through and then this idea of how you think about risk over a longer timescale. Right. So a common argument against worrying about risk is to say, okay, this is not happening for 100 years. We shouldn't waste our resources today. Uh, I'm trying to find examples in other industries where this argument fails. And we have a big problem with pollution, with climate change or oil-based energy. But we started car industry with electrical vehicles. If we spend time at that time considering possible negative impact, maybe we would not switch and everything would be much better, much easier. So Mm. it seems like simply arguing that uh, we have a hundred years, we should not waste our time uh, is a very uh, narrow-minded, short-sighted approach to this problem. Yes, uh, that really did help to focus my mind, not that it necessarily needed, but a way to think about even a smaller potential risk or to consider as many options as possible when we're thinking about what a risk could be. Now, I think, though, a risk that has a lot of proximate relevance, and I think one of the most serious ones, I mean, apart from neural networks, which have a series of problems that we might not even know about for some time, we already know some of them, is in the economic realm. And so, you know, a lot has been discussed or written about the impacts of AI, much like any technology will have these ramifications with unemployment, maybe even destroying entire industries and then the attendant social upheaval that will engender. So I know this is maybe a hopelessly too broad a question, but where do you stand on this question of the massively disruptive, socially, well, antisocial ramifications of, you know, AI that will render many people unemployed or just change the nature of employment? So short term, that's what happens. Long term, if you actually get to human level performance, then all jobs are gone, right? Physical labor, cognitive labor, it doesn't matter. There is nothing you can contribute. So we have 100% unemployment. How that impacts value of money? Does money even exist? Those are open questions, and I haven't heard anyone addressing them. People talk about unconditional basic income, so they assume money will still be a thing. Everyone gets whatever small amount or medium amount, but that's the solution. What happens with 8 billion people who have a lot of free time? That's not obvious. Yeah, and I I think that there are, I mean, when we talk about, let's say, an employment issue, there's no such thing as just an employment issue because it will naturally have any kind of impact. So most of the risks we're even talking about, they're interlinked with just the structure of society, the nature of society. So it's quite difficult even to address these issues because we're talking about them as they're separate, but they're intertwined. So, but maybe an example that I was struck by, maybe I'm sure you know about this, that I didn't know it until relatively recently that the biggest employer of men in the United States is the trucking industry. Mm-hmm. So if if all trucks are automated, they're all self-driving, let's say. So just that alone, if there was no other problem with AI, we're talking about tens of millions of men, Mm -hmm. maybe more, who will lose their jobs. Just that alone has massive implications for society, political and otherwise. But in light of that, the problem I see with the way AI researchers think about these issues is that they're technical. And of course, at a certain level, they are technological because a self-driving car is technology. But every 
technology is embedded in a specific social system, a socioeconomic system, to be more, uh, I suppose, academically correct. So, and Jaron Lanier in the myth of AI from about 2014, this was a great speech he gave. He, he touched on a lot of these issues and this was one of them. And I don't see enough attention paid to this. I know UBI, a, a lot of tech people are more interested in that because they see maybe, you know, these jobs are going to be lost. But so take this example of truck driving and forgive me for going on a bit, but I, I think this is a very significant approach that is neglected. So in one social system, such as ours, capitalism, where people need to work for a living, losing your job is very serious. You then can't pay for medical care. You can't pay your rent. You can't buy food. But another social system. Now, I know you're, you're from Russia. So of course, when I say socialism, let's say it has maybe more negative loading, but it could be anarchism. It could be a lot of different social systems. I don't want to get hung on, on the names. The introduction of automation could be liberating because then if everything is produced by machines, we can spend all day hosting podcasts, writing novels, playing the clarinet, playing the violin. So I know this maybe seems like a criticism against you and, and others, but I don't see enough of this attention paid to the socioeconomic context, the system. I know that that's a more difficult issue than saying, how do these robots function? So well, what do you think of what I'm saying? Maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe you've written about this, but it's not, again, it's not just you. It's, it's a lot of other people in this, in this general field. Right. So a number of points. So one is, again, you're looking at very narrow short-term issue. Car drivers, truck drivers lose jobs. Mm -hmm. The real problem is everyone loses jobs. <laughs> when a car driver loses, they can get a different job. They can become a plumber. That's not a problem at all. They'll make more money. When all jobs are gone, now you have to restructure society because you no longer need education. Why are you going to college? There are no jobs. You're still dumber than any machine. Mm -hmm. This, let's say we settle. You think that people are looking for free time and then they can play clarinet and podcasts or whatever. Most people, 99% of people have zero interest in everything you just mentioned. They don't want to write books. They don't want to do podcasts. That's not what they do. We live in a bubble. I like it. You like it. We're going to write those books. Most people have zero interest in that field. So for them, whatever meaning they have, a lot of times comes related to the occupation they do, to the job they do. Same for us, but again, we do it not for the sole purpose of survival. We have intrinsic interest. Most people, it's very different, right? So what they do with so much free time, it's not obvious that it's beneficial for them. People turn to all sorts of self-destructive uh, hobbies. If you see people who are unemployed, they're usually not always doing the most hmm. intelligent things with their time. That's definitely a, a valid point. Look, when I think of the socioeconomic or sociopolitical, it's much larger. In other words, it's, I think, what Nietzsche spoke about, the transvaluation of all value. So it's, you know, it's not just economic, it's it's your entire value system, your Umwelt, to use that lovely a German world. So maybe I'm being hopelessly idealistic here, but it just seems most people also hate their job. David Graeber, uh, you know, this sadly late anthropologist, you know, spoke about the bullshit jobs. That seems to be on the rise, particularly in the way Western world. So I kind of figure that people would become their better selves if they were forced to have, I know we're going off, off on a bit of a tangent, but I think if they had more free time, they would discover more that they have more talents, more interests than they currently have. But in any event, though, you've still kind of skirted the problem. So I think the 100% unemployment, that's a bold claim. But do you see the point about this is represented by a cartoon that I saw some years ago, where it was the same scenario of like someone passing a television shop and and it was like, oh, the, the machines are taking all your jobs. And it said capitalism. And then the person was crying because the, the other one was socialism. 
yay, I'm, I'm liberated now because, you know, I don't have to work. So, but again, I, I don't want to get bogged down to ideology. The point being is that a technology enters the bloodstream of one society, it has X effect. Another society, the same technology, it has Y effect because the organizational imperatives are different, right? So, of course, 100% unemployment, I mean, I think that's a whole different level. But do you see this point about how considering self-driving cars is not just, it's not a technical issue, you know, it is actually a social one. And so how we've ordered society, does that make any sense or am I just kind of rambling emptily? Uh, sure. I don't think there is as much difference between what you call socialist and capitalist societies. We have a safety net, we have unemployment, we give people free health care if mm -hmm. they don't work. So that's already taken care of exactly the same. You think, okay, well, it just seems as if robots could be, and then this is again, maybe just a sort of anarcho pseudo utopia idea of robots being highly liberating as opposed to this fear. I just feel like so much of the fear of the job issue could be negated if people didn't have to participate in a system where they, you know, have to work for a living or, or have to have insecure unemployment. But uh, I know it's, yeah, but I, I suppose we're, we're getting somewhat off the main track, but there are alternative perspectives. So Rodney Brooks, who seems to be very skeptical on a host of issues that you and others take seriously. So his point that he's made both in print and in interviews is that just on employment now, you know, he says, well, you go to factories, still people working there. You go to a doctor's office, there's still people working there. So there hasn't been this displacement. He also talks about this lag. So when factories institute a new system, it's very expensive. So a very new one, they're not going to just replace it because, and he talks about some systems are like from the 60s, but we're still using them. And then he talks about self-driving cars well, they were first were invented, if you will, in the 80s, but there's hardly any of them on the road now. So what do you make of his kind of blithe disregard of even the economic problem as being one that's serious? Well, it sounds like he's just stating the obvious. Yeah, we don't have human level AI yet. I agree. It takes mm -hmm. about 30 years for technology from it being developed to it being widely used. Take video phone calls, right? Mm -hmm. They were available in the 70s. AT&T had the systems. They were pricey. Few people had them. Now everyone has a smartphone, can do video calls. In the 70s, you can argue that this is not an issue. We're never going to have video phones. Yeah, just shifted 30 years. I don't think my side argues that it's happening today mm. or it's already done. We're saying that whatever it's 30 years or 100 years, this is a huge problem mm -hmm. and we don't have a solution. Yeah, and I think that often the example that is used by those who are less than concerned, they, they say, well, should we have preserved the horse-drawn car to stop the cars coming online, right? They dismiss it in that way. But then as someone pointed out, but others have as well, that even if you use the Industrial Revolution as a model of this idea that there'll be more employment, let, let's say, I know your argument is if we have human level, then a lot of employment disappears, uh, human level AI. But even the best case scenario of there'll be all these new jobs who don't have to worry about a lot of unemployment, that the Industrial Revolution, it, there were periods when there was a lot of social disruption and dislocation to kind of transition from, let's say, an agricultural economy to industrial one. And we kind of forget that, that even if we're now just in the middle of what will ultimately be good, people will lose their lives. We'll have political systems. We already see the rise of populism, I think, is tied in many ways to increasing inequality and, and other seemingly economic issues. So that's also something to take into account, whether or not, you know, whatever your utopian, or not utopian, but your positive biases on this. Okay, so I guess this would be a good point to again move into, I know, areas you've written a lot about, but I here we we do disagree i must say i i think but 
I don't mean to be unfair to you. That's why I'm going to, you know, have you clarify these issues. I'm not sure what we disagree on, if you yes. can tell me specifically. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So I guess I would know it, but you don't yet. So that's why I'm first going to ask you to explain. And I know that, that there's, again, contention with all of these issues. So artificial general intelligence or AGI, as it's called, and then super intelligence. So I have a paper where I try to kind of clarify this point. Uh, when we talk about general intelligence, we usually use humans as example. So you can, you can learn pretty much any human job. You can play chess, you can play carnet, all that is great. Uh, super intelligence is uh, smarter than any human and all humans combined. It can do things outside of domains humans are good at. So add all the animal intelligence, alien intelligence, and just general brute forcing of interesting spaces. Mm -hmm. Assumption is that as soon as you get to human level AI, very quickly you get to super intelligence because you add all the knowledge on the internet, infinite memory for practical purposes, much faster speeds. So super intelligence, yeah, is just kind of a ramped up AGI. I mean, they're, they're in a way you achieve AGI and then you're on your way to a super intelligence. Is that kind of the idea? All right. So A, it can do research, science and engineering 24-7 in parallel, much faster, much better. No need to take vacations, no need to sleep. Hmm. And in addition to whatever improvement you have from algorithmic improvements, you also just have like complete knowledge of all mm. human history, PhD in every field. So it's quite an advantage over an average human. Yes. No, and of course, then the attendant risks are significant. Now, I'd like to first delve into some of the specifics of some papers that were quite striking to me and certainly provocative, if nothing else. So the one on detecting qualia in natural and artificial intelligence. First of all, you, you give a great sort of summary on consciousness, the research of it. You, you cite some of the heavy hitters, you know, people like Thomas Nagel and David Chalmers and Ned Block and Daniel Dennett and even Stanislav Dahan comes in there and Donald Hoffman. I mean, it's a very amazingly researched paper. It's like 222 citations. So yeah, quite extraordinary work of scholarship. Now, it was really fascinating to me because of the cognitive studies done into how illusion, that's the hinge point of the paper of how the fact that humans are prone to these visual illusions in particular as a window into the way our cognition works, but then that as a potential tool to detect qualia. So I suppose we should take a step back and qualia is the Latin word for basically phenomenal consciousness, as Ned Block would say, or subjective consciousness, or the Thomas Nagel idea, it's something like it to be a bat. You know, what is it like to be something? Now, I thought that was so intriguing, but I, I have a lot of questions. I mean, or maybe ones that are kind of central. So. You um, point out, which I also didn't know, that there are actually artificial systems right now that kind of experience illusions, which was kind of mind-blowing to me how that's even possible. So maybe talk about that. I mean, how is that even? Let's just start there. I mean, Right. So if you think about how artificial neural networks hmm. work, it's uh, less surprising then. So we made a copy of the human brain as as much as we could, as much as we understood. And we got very similar level of performance and pattern recognition and the errors it produces are very similar. It makes mistakes similar to mistakes humans make. 
when it recognizes patterns in those visual illusions, optical illusions, it also gets the same experiences because a lot of it is based on human visual systems. So again, it shouldn't be that surprising. But then people ran experiments and not always on systems specifically targeting illusions, but general visual systems, artificial systems, they got the same observations as, as we do with humans for particular types of illusions. So that was my kind of way to find a loophole to get some exposure to internal experiences. Obviously, we don't know what it's like to be a computer. It's never going to be possible. But if I can get a system which consistently for novel illusions, not something you can Google, find on the internet, but for novel illusions has the same internal states as I do, I kind of have to give it as much credit as I give to you when you say you feel pain. Hmm. I have no idea if you are a robot, if you an avatar, but I kind of go, okay, I'll give you credit for saying all those things. Same idea. As I said, it's really ingenious. I give you, you know, full marks for that. It's just, it's something that you, you don't customarily think about, even of how that's a window into our cognition and then into an artificial system. But let, let me just, if, if you don't mind, so you quote in this paper, I don't know the notation, I just sort of copied and pasted it, but okay. So you quote someone who said, by dissociating our sensory percepts, that's now people, from the physical characteristics of a stimulus, visual illusions provide neuroscientists with a unique opportunity to study the neuronal mechanisms underlying sensory experiences, which as I said, I found really fascinating. Now in the same paragraph, well, you, you one, well, let's say one or two sentences later, you write, from this, we have to conclude that even today's simple AIs, as they experience specific types of illusions, are rudimentarily conscious. You've tried to explain it there. I still don't follow the logic, if you don't mind, because even the sentence to me is question begging in, in the technical philosophical sense, because you can't presuppose that they have conscious experience, right? Because I think experience and consciousness are one and the same here. When we talk about consciousness, experience it's a tautology so you're kind of saying they already have consciousness but you have to obviously make the argument still i still don't quite get how you know even saying machines experience an illusion you know to me you've hit on it a little bit there it's something like it to be a rhinoceros an elephant a salamander uh, even a fly but it is nothing like it to be watson it's nothing like it to be deep blue Alpha Zero. And these are very complicated machines. Consciousness is pretty still mysterious and complicated. I know that it's a very contentious field. But even the, and you mentioned some of the debates in that paper about, you know, people like Chalmers, the hard problem of consciousness. And then there's the so-called eliminativists like Keith Frankish and Daniel Dennett. But they don't doubt that consciousness exists. The question is, what is it? So Chalmers says that there's this hard problem and he's more of a panpsychist now, I think. Whereas Daniel Dennett isn't saying there's no consciousness. It's just not what we think it is. But both of these camps, if you will, they believe consciousness is real. You know, Sam Harris, who doesn't think free will is real, the illusion of the self, but consciousness is real. So, but with the machine, I just frankly, I can't see it. And, and here's the thing. So the behavior, right? So you're, you're saying there's an illusion that they, the machine, that they kind of detect as well. We detect an illusion. That's fine. But the Boston Dynamics robot dog kind of thing, you know, it goes upstairs but it's not a pet dog you know it moves impressively well for a machine but it's never going to be a dog so how do you make that leap with saying something is conscious that that's a machine that's binary code or, or a neural network 
Right. So uh, I think it helps to start by saying that consciousness is not a binary thing, right? It's mm-hmm. not you have it or you don't have it. It's a spectrum from zero, like a rock, to super consciousness, a more conscious, multi-conscious entity, more conscious than me and you. On that spectrum, let's look at some interesting points, such as what is the minimal agent with some consciousness? For example, a visual system capable of experiencing patterns. What is it like to be that visual system? That's a legitimate question. And they experience illusions as those experiments show us. So all I'm saying is that if you believe uh, something like bacteria is rudimentary conscious, then a machine which has the same internal experiences should be treated as such. You give examples of you just not understanding how software robots can be treated the same way. I don't understand the difference between a dog and a robot dog once they have the same complexity. Well, I think your language is rather problematic, but again, they're not similarly complex. I agree. Right now, it's not the case. They're Mm -hmm. definitely far, far, far apart. But my question is, at some point, they will merge, right, in complexity. This is where the, the disagreement is, this, these fundamental issues. But I will readily admit I'm far less au fait with AI than I am with neuroscience. That's far more what I'm, I guess, interested in, read up more about that. And just there seems to be increasingly some podcasts like Brain Inspired. They try and look at both sides of this. They try and get people from both communities that increasingly there is a vast divergence between those at the coal face of studying the human brain and, and by extension, intelligence, the mind, and then those in AI, it seems to be it's going diametrically opposite directions here. So I I don't want to just go on about this because it it definitely is a deeper discussion. But if I may lay it out a little bit, and and again, I I seem to be picking on you a little bit, but I see these trends in the broader AI community, is that there's a kind of a series of unfortunate incidents, I guess, or an historical context to this. So AI research and neuroscience kind of grew up together. So there's that problem, if you will. And then there's the tendency of any dominant technology whether it's a hydraulic engine or a hydraulic system or or a clock to be the analogy of the human brain, right? So, I mean, Matthew Cobb has written this book, The Idea of the Brain. So these metaphors we use are kind of supposedly ways to understand it. And so this idea of the brain as a computer, unfortunately, is a very flawed metaphor. Increasingly, it's becoming flawed as we understand the brain better. And unfortunately, if you kind of try and construct a a logical statement with the three, two premises and a syllogism, which I'm going to do, and forgive the reductionism, by the way. So if you say the brain is like a computer, a computer has hardware and software, therefore a brain, hardware and software, and then to add a little bit of a qualifier, the mind is like software, right? And from these ideas, you get things like, I can make a brain in a computer, I can upload consciousness, maybe we live in a simulation. So a lot of these ideas that you've written about that are interesting to think about become real, but they have this problem of, well, the brain, a Robert Epstein, among others, wrote that article in 2016, The Empty Brain, Why the Brain is Absolutely Not Like a Computer, and he's one of many. And so do you see that as a kind of a problem? What I'm trying to say is, is that your papers are always well written, well thought of, provocative, they're interesting. I love reading them, but some of those ones, I have to go, there's like this base assumption baked into particularly these two papers. The other one is the space of possible mind designs, uh, another one which had a lot of these interesting ideas. Now, I'm probably unfairly attacking you, and I don't mean to do that. It's more just when you open up this idea, so many other things can follow. But you know, you've got to kind of trace it back, like your original input to use a deep neural network analogy, like you've got to go. So do you think there's validity in this? I mean, I, I can speak more about that paper, some of the ideas in there, the space of possible mind designs. So 
What do you think of this? And again, you're definitely not alone in this. It's not like I'm going after Dr. Roman Yapolsky. Like I see this as a trend, you know, and, I, and, and then I look at the neuroscience experts and they're telling me something very different. Right. So I, I don't feel attacked at all. You, <laughs> you ask all the right questions. So I'm happy about that. Okay. Phew. I'm uh, relieved. To say that a brain is not a computer, I think the substitution is brain is not a Van Neumann architecture, not a Van Neumann computer with separate memory and a CPU and all that. Neural networks are very different. They don't have this explicit memory storage. They are, some people say, software 2.0. But the point is that Artificial neural networks are neural networks. They are the closest approximation based on all the neuroscience we know to how a brain works. If you know something else, we immediately add that part to our artificial neural networks. So to say that substrate makes a difference, whatever neural network is implemented in carbon or silicon creates different mathematical properties is a strong argument you have to defend. We are saying that, yes, absolutely, a brain is a neural network, and a neural network is a neural network. So it's not surprising that when we run experiments, we get same performance, same errors, same internal states. That's, again, an interesting way to rebut this. And as you said, I mean, we are talking about neural, they're called neural networks for a good reason. But I think there again, when you mentioned about the substrate, and, and of course, there's a notion of substrate independence, this is a term used, you see, that's again, very questionable from those who study the biology, because th that's the whole point. So this is dualism all over again. So I actually, a, a couple of times in that paper, The Space of Postal Mind Designs, I wrote in the margin are dualism. Maybe it's worth quoting some of these sections. What struck me in particular, now there's a definition of mind. You actually have another paper where you clarified, I was a bit less critical when I read, I think it's called Artificial General Intelligence and the Human Mental Model. You actually then laid out more what you meant by mind. You didn't actually do that as much in the space of pulse mind. But anyway, if you don't mind me quoting you here, this is on- I, I think at this point, yeah. you are a much bigger expert on my papers than I am. I haven't read that paper <laughs> since it was published. And and you have all this fresh knowledge. I would uh, probably prefer to stick to more recent uh, literature okay. just because I have better recollection. In general, I completely agree that there is uh, disagreement and whatever consciousness can be mm -hmm. uploaded to silicon, it's not at all proven in either direction. But I'm yet to see a good argument for what makes biology special, given that we have, again, rudimentary but brain implants. We can replace a small part of the brain with silicon and it seems to perform well with the rest of the brain. So if we can continue this process and transfer all the parts one at a time, at what point do we expect to go, okay, but this one neuron is really difficult. Sam Harris also uses this word like the magic of meat. And I think for someone like Harris, it's it's an odd comment to make. And you said the special, it's not, I think the specialness magic of these terms, it's, it's a kind of a red herring. So it's dualism because the mind isn't separate to the brain, the biological brain. And that's true of our brains. It's true of any brain. So th this goes back to this fundamental idea. If you think the brain is some kind of a computing machine and just needs to be made on silicon with these neural networks, it can happen. 
But the point is, is that we have our consciousness and the elephant has its consciousness, not because there's anything magical. It's because it just happens to be a biological fact. And so, for instance, why I wanted to quote this to you, just because I know it doesn't mean that even if you've forgotten, it doesn't remain because you make this point. If we accept materialism, we have to also accept that accurate software simulations of animal and human minds are possible. Now, right there, this isn't materialism because this already is dualism. This is saying mind is this magical thing that can exist on different substrates. And the point is John Searle, I'm sure you know him or know of him at least, he spent a lot of his time trying to naturalize the study of consciousness. And uh, Gerald Edelman wrote a great book, A Wider Than the Sky, in which, you know, he's the guy who proposed the theory of neuronal group selection. And in Wider Than the Sky, he explains consciousness. And then he has these two C terms. I don't want to get too technical, but one of them is your, your neural circuitry, your neural architecture that is intimately tied to your phenomenal transformers that he called, basically your subjective experience. And he says, these two are interwoven. They're, they're just interconnected. And so he makes a mockery of the Chalmers P zombie, the philosophical zombie, because he said, if you encounter a being that acts like a human being, they will have your subjective experience because the behavior is tied to the underlying biology. And so I feel that this is another difference between those who look at biology, you know, who look at the brain of in many creatures, and then those who look at it computer, and they think it's a computational problem, but it's much deeper, it's much complicated. So, well, let me cite a concrete example. Just, sorry, this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll give it back to you. So, Matthew Cobb, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote the book, The uh, Idea of the Brain, he recently said, now he has spent much of his professional life studying the fruit fly, Drosophila, the technical name. And of course, people have, like Eve Marder, studied the stomach of the lobster for much of her. Uh, Eric Kandel, the won the Nobel Prize for studying the aplesia. It's like a sea snail and people study rats. They study all these things. The nematode worm, the C. elegans, 302 neurons. Anyway, he said that if you can simulate the head of a maggot in 50 years, that will be tremendous progress. He doesn't think that will happen. And he said this in a podcast earlier this year. When I hear things like that, and I hear the fact that Eve Marder, who studied the stomach of a lobster, she's still learning things. The 302 neurons of the, the C. elegans, they're still learning so when I read your papers about AGI and superintelligence, they're cool. They give me plenty of ideas for sci-fi short stories that I like to write every now and again. But I have to send it. And again, I don't mean to feel like I'm attacking you and criticize you unfairly. And please correct me if I'm wrong. It just seems like as a risk for AI, it's so vanishingly small compared to the other ones. Am I being hopelessly unfair to you? Do you hate me now? I hate you a little more, but not enough to stop this. Uh, so you brought up now it's 50 years to do this. The other guy was saying it's 30 years to that. I don't disagree with that. It may be 50 years, but in 50 years, you'll have this thing and now you have to deal with it. And mm. right now is the time to address it. You brought up an interesting point about P-zombies. Mm. I was kind of on the same page. I felt that a P-zombie cannot behave like a human because it doesn't have the same knowledge. It doesn't have the same experiences. But there are diseases, different diseases, which make what I will call partial P-zombies. Certain people cannot recognize faces. Others don't see color. Others uh, don't have visual Mm. Uh, thinking patterns. If you look at it and create a superset of those, nothing an average human experience is no quality is fundamental and required. And these people, in many cases, they don't even know they have a unique mind. They don't know they're neurodiverse. They behave just like all of us. So lately, I've been thinking that maybe a P-zombie can be assembled from a superset of those uh, diseases. As a thought experiment, I don't propose actually designing someone with that much genetic mutation. But uh, so I think even that is not so obvious. 
this is a really intriguing vein of research that you've kind of opened up, I, I suppose, for others to do. Yeah, I'm not research. doing it myself. <laughs> no, true. But I think generally the same with the detecting qualia of we think about this the wrong way. Let's not look at the neurotypical, but rather the neural atypical as, as a research area for understanding the variety of different minds, different brains. So I, I think this is something that maybe doesn't always occur to, to people to look at it in this way. As a thought experiment, uh, I think you have difficulty feeling the same way about non-biological agents as you do about biological. So as a thought experiment, let's say we go to some other planet and we find a specimen there. Mm. It's obviously some sort of uh, agent. You don't know if it's biological, if it's mechanically designed. You don't know if it has evolutionary history or was mm -hmm. explicitly intelligently designed. You bring it to the lab. Now figure out if it's conscious. It helps to remove your baggage, your bias against mm. robotic dogs. Yeah, I, I, I like how you've turned my attack into a counterattack. That's really good. But I like, I think that's a great thought experiment. Okay, well, well, then I was just talking about the other paper, Artificial General Intelligence and the Human Mental Model. And it shed light on the other paper, the space of possible mind designs, because there you talk about mind as an optimizing agent. And immediately the penny dropped. I went, oh, well, okay, if mind is in a way, I hesitate to say downgraded, but if mind can be conceived in that way, then it may makes sense that Dr. Yampolsky believes that machines can be minds of a sort if it's an optimizing age. So I guess I just put a higher bar on the mind and maybe it explains some of my other biases. So then does it to you, I, I think I know the answer, but please indulge me. So Watson, a really impressive artificial machinery and deep blue and alpha zero or even alpha go that preceded it. Would you say then that it's something like it to be Watson? Because I don't. That's actually, I guess, a big divide. I, I don't believe it's anything like it to be any of these wonderfully sophisticated machines, as brilliant as they are in their way. All right. And I think it goes back to what I said about continuum of consciousness. Mm. You kind of assume you have to be at least a self-aware human-like agent to go, what is it like to be me? Do you think bacteria have this type of thoughts? If you do, then it's a different, but most people would say, no, bacteria, mm. they don't even have a brain, so they don't. But they are conscious to 0. 0.0001 value, whatever yeah. that means. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a difficult problem. That's a really huge one, of course, and one that many people, philosophers ac and across the spectrum can appreciate or, or weighing in on and have weighed in on for decades or maybe millennia if, if you... Here uh, is another thought experiment, again, just because it's fun. So let's yeah. say we do succeed at creating very good optimizers, right? Uh, just uh, intelligence, forget mm -hmm. consciousness, mm -hmm. and it's uh, superior to you in every way. Mm -hmm. Smarter than you, more knowledgeable, writes better poetry, anything you can think of. At this point, would you find it kind of weird and difficult to argue that, but you have no consciousness? I see what you, yeah, I, I guess you are, I mean, people like me, should I say, not not you, but you kind of trap yourself a little bit because, as you said, if I make the categorical argument and then I start having these in-depth discussions with something that I consider to be machinery, then I have to start to wonder. It could be anthropomorphizing, but it does, it does pose a definite existential question or ontology. But, okay, these issues are very esoteric, and I see we've gone over an hour. Can you spend a little bit more time, or uh, do you want to run away quickly? And I'm enjoying this. This is actually good. Usually I get questions such as, tell us what AI is. So this is not bad. 
Okay, well, I'm, I'm relieved. So, okay, so let's set that aside. But what about the, just from a technical perspective, and here I have to rely on someone more familiar with the specifics of the brain, etc. So, Robert Epstein, this is a great essay called The Empty Brain. I'll probably link to it in the, in the show notes. Obviously, I'll link to your work first, but in which he talks about trying to simulate a brain in a silicon substrate or, or a non-biological one. Okay, so if you don't mind me just reading this quickly, to understand even, quote, sorry, to understand even the basics of how the brain maintains the human intellect, we might need to know not just the current state of all 86 billion neurons and their 100 trillion interconnections, so those will be the synapses, not just the varying strengths with which they are connected, and not just the states of more than 1,000 proteins that exist at each connection point, but how the moment-to-moment -moment activity of the brain contributes to the integrity of the system. And then add to this the uniqueness of each brain, brought about in part because of the uniqueness of each person's life history and Kendall's predictions start to sound overly optimistic. That's a reference, end quote, to Eric Kandel, who was making the reference about the 50 years of another low-level biological entity. So you will know this more than I. So I guess I can maybe add uh, two questions maybe. So, you know, how do you address this kind of technical challenge? But then also, I've heard of Spawn. That's a, apparently a very complex neural network or artificial intelligence system that has something like 60 million neurons. I heard this on a podcast not too long ago, there might be more, and it's trying to be modeled on a human brain. So that's apparently quite a massive achievement to even have 60 million neurons. But of course, the human gut alone has 100 million neurons. So this again, just poses the question of if you're talking about simulating an AGI even, which would be close to a human brain, what do you make of these kind of challenges? I mean, do you read neuroscience like this and sort of think that the problem is almost impossible? Or do you don't have those kind of that kind of pessimism. I mean, they're just saying you need more compute and uh, something like GPT-3 has, what, 175 billion synapse-like features. So we're getting there. You can actually chart the progress to human-level computation requirements. Kurzweil does it with his predictions. 2023 to 2045 is the range where we get enough compute to simulate a human brain. Okay, well then, I know Kurzweil, he's been on this for a while. His predictions on other issues have been quite accurate. I read his book, How to Create a Mind, last year, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I do think he also makes some fundamental flaws in how he conceives of the human brain and human cognition more broadly. But okay, let me ask you this. What is your feeling then, or not feeling, your probability of a human-level intelligence? What do you think the time frame is on that? So I was in agreement with Kurzweil. I was thinking it's 2045. I was privileged enough to have access to a lot of insiders who now think it may happen in less than seven years. Less than seven I don't years. Have, I don't have personal access, so I don't know if it's 90%, 10%, but there are people who are at the top of his game saying that. Well, that puts things into a significant perspective. But, but again, I think my main point for your podcast is don't worry about timelines. That's not the relevant factor. Mm -hmm. Whatever it's seven years or 70, does it make any difference whatsoever? So I think to go back to the example yeah, of the, of the cars, the point is the risk. But I suppose maybe now we're going in circles a little bit. Have you read uh, Kevin Kelly, The Myth of a Superhuman AI and Wired from for about four years ago? Did you read that article? Yes, I address it a little bit in the latest paper on AI skepticism. 
Okay, I, I was going to ask you because I found that very convincing because he, he really looks at these five areas and then uh, critiques them. So you have delivered a go. So I suppose I won't let you rebut that here if you, but... I'm happy to address it. Just uh, as I said, I found about a hundred of such uh, why this is not going to be a problem and they all kind of weak and there is another two, three hundred and people keep mm. making new ones. Well, okay. Well, if you don't mind, then let, let's just make this, I guess, not necessarily the last question, but the last on this kind of issue. Well, there might be one other, but let's just, okay. So he's, I'm not going to, obviously it's a long essay, but so he looks at the assumptions. So I'll just read the assumptions and then he's just a short little summary, if you don't mind. And then I'd like, I'm very interested in how you rebut this. So number one, artificial intelligence is already getting smarter than us at an exponential rate, which you of course have laid out a bit. Two, we'll make AIs into a general purpose intelligence like our own. Three, we can make human intelligence in silicon. Four, intelligence can be expanded without limit. Five, once we have exploding superintelligence, it can solve most of our problems. And then he, he has five heresies. So he challenges these. Number one, intelligence is not a single dimension. So smarter than humans is a meaningless concept. Two, humans do not have general purpose minds and neither will AIs. I found that just as an aside, I really hadn't thought about the fact that we're not as general as often is said. But anyway, three, emulations of human thinking in other media will be constrained by cost. Four dimensions of intelligence are not infinite. And then five intelligences are only one factor in progress. Now, I guess there's a lot there, but what do you make of at least maybe the two points about superintelligence and AGI? So simple things like it's not infinite. Okay. It doesn't have to be infinite. It has to be above human or at human level. Mm -hmm. Nobody argues you'll have IQ of 10 billion. Maybe you'll have IQ of a thousand. Is that not scary enough? No, true. Yeah. But okay. Another argument, intelligence is not a single number. I agree with that, but I'm smarter than a monkey. Monkey knows how to hunt in the jungle. I don't. That's a different part of intelligence. Who cares? I'm smarter and I'm going to defeat them. So, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a red herring then. He so. comes up with things which sound good, but if you think about them for five minutes, you realize it's not solving any of the safety issues. I did say that could be the last one, but one other point though, and you've dealt with this in what is called the confinement problem. Maybe we maybe need to define that, but uh, this was Steven Pinker's point in, uh, you probably saw that whole thread, you know, the Jaron Lanier, the myth of AI, and then many people, including Michael Shermer, uh, George Dyson. I cite all of them in that paper and address all of them. So definitely link to that paper. It just came oh. out this week. So I understand why you don't have it yet, but yeah, it's such arguments. I mean, they're very smart people very accomplished, mm. but very few of them have any background in the domain. So they kind of just project from their disciplines, mm. whatever it's psychology or atheism or whatever it is. Mm. But Roman, you know, for me, this is late in the afternoon. You, you're upsetting me here because I was hoping to kind of checkmate you a little bit and just and not have to worry about super intelligent machines. Now, with this latest paper, you're going to give me nightmares. I mean, really, this is this is rather inconsiderate of you. Excellent. So it's working. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I say well, in the paper that we don't have sufficient amount of fear in the AI development community. People are reckless. Absolutely. You know, I'm a warrior by, by nature and climate change is the, the looming existential threat. So that I now have to add another layer onto my extensive list of worries is deeply troubling. But if you also want to align your mind to what are actual threats, but okay, then, and I know you addressed it in a paper, which I'm definitely going to read, but just this question of value. So intelligence is one thing, uh, but you can have a, a geek of like 150. Now, geek is not a bad word. I'm something of a geek myself. 150 IQ who wants to play chess all day. They're not looking to 
take over the world. So Steven Pinker's point, which you probably address, Steven Pinker's ultimate point is that we kind of project this alpha male psychology of wanting to dominate and take over. But, you know, why would a, this ultra intelligent machine want to do any kind of damage? It's not evolved the way we are to be greedy and selfish and, you know, so uh, you, I see you uh, rolling your head there. You're obviously a This is basic economics. This is game theoretical. You want to control resources. No matter what actual goals you have, you want to secure that you will not be terminated. Your value function will remain stable and you'll have resources to complete your goals. This has nothing to do with being of any particular gender. Machines don't have gender. Hmm. So, so basically, we're back, I guess, to the value alignment idea of something programmed just to, you know, maybe the paperclip just to do something relatively simple, but it has great optimization capabilities and power and intelligence, it will then subsume or exploit a lot of aspects of the world to achieve even if it's a very simple end or objective function in the technical language, right? So that's kind of all right. The instrumental goals would be the same. It would converge on the same desires to be safe and be in charge. I'm really looking forward to that paper now that will uh, that I, I kind of thought I had good answers to some of your earlier papers, but I clearly don't because I had to wait until the latest installment here. Okay, but again, all your papers that I've read anyway are worth reading for the quality of the writing and the thought-provoking positions and, and the logic. So I suppose we should start ending off here and I'm mindful of your time, but you did mention GPT-3, which I was hearing about and then I was doing more reading to kind of equate myself. What is your impression of GPT-3? Because it seems to be the latest kid on the block that is singularly highly impressive, but still has some shortcomings. But you've mentioned the 175 billion neurons in a way or, or inputs of, of a sort. I read that number as well. So I think they're more like synaptic connections. Synaptic connections, sorry. Okay. So what is your? So it is a language model. Hmm. It's uh, mostly good at uh, producing text, but it has been applied in visual domain as well, so it can complete pictures and such. And it's not obviously at human level, but it's hmm. very good at generalizing without being taught explicitly. It started playing chess, doing math, translating languages. It uh, writes uh, on many prompts at human level. So you can tell if this essay was by mm. GPT-3 or GPT-4. And the most important part, it keeps scaling. There is no diminishing returns. You add more compute, more synaptic connections, and it keeps improving. So if you project this to GPT-4, 5N, you can figure out what, what might happen. Yeah, because of course, GPT-2 for a long while was the gold standard. And Gary Marcus and someone who you probably address in this paper, because he's been a, a skeptic of a lot of the more doomsday prognostications. One of his big points was language, because it's a more of an infinite game or unrestricted, should I say, compared to even something like Go or chess, as complicated as they are, there's a, a set number of moves, whereas language has this unrestricted quality. So he wondered whether a machine could ever successfully produce and understand language. But clearly now it seems that might be a very real possibility. I, I did want to ask you, and I suppose I should have asked a bit earlier, your countryman, Gary Kasparov, made a point in an interview I listened to where he said that, of course, he was famously defeated by a machine, Deep Blue. And he said that Alpha Zero was really the first example of true artificial intelligence because it wasn't programmed to play a specific game. It, of course, taught itself to play games and now it beat Alpha Go. Alpha Go had beaten the best human player in the game of Go and now Alpha Zero beat Alpha Go and so on. It could teach itself. What do you make of, of that contention? Well, 
you can point at different systems as the first AI, first starting point, and then everyone will tell you it's not real AI because it doesn't feel or drive a car or something. It is an amazing accomplishment. It showed that a system can discover all these rules of life fully independently. So if you can reduce real world to a game, you can accomplish the same results. And this is why those concerns about convergence on game theoretic instrumental goals are so important. And then to project human qualities, okay, the systems are not evolved like we are. That's exactly how we train them. Leading algorithms right now for assigning weights to neural networks use evolutionary approach, either self-computation or straight genetic programming. So why are they surprised they're getting exactly what evolutionary economics would predict? Mm. Now, it's rare that I speak to someone of your technical expertise and, and wide-ranging knowledge, of, but we can maybe try to combine it with the question of, you know, modeling a, a human brain or at least advancing artificial intelligence systems. Quantum computing, this seems to be also something that's gaining more currency. I believe there was that, I forget the specifics now, you probably know that the Chinese computer that had been way more powerful than anything before quite recently, maybe a few months ago, but just in general, how do you think quantum computing will change the computing landscape? landscape and then with implications for artificial intelligence and then modeling the human brain. I know there's maybe a lot there, but... Uh... No, it's fine. So it's not obvious if human brain relies on any quantum effects. Penrose uh, seems to make that argument, but it seems like we're doing just fine without quantum computers. If we do get an actual quantum computer, it might speed up a lot of training. Mm -hmm. But I think biggest impact of quantum computers is on cryptography and uh, cryptocurrency world, not so much on AI. Okay, but that does seem to be a very exciting field. Now, I know you're looking at risk from many different perspectives and angles, but are there areas of risk in AI that you are more concerned with? Or is it a time scale question, perhaps? Or do you divide into like proximate and distal? So just to give us a sense of what your focus now is, or what you're of most concern to you? Uh, the biggest problem is purposeful, malevolent design. Everyone's concentrating on bugs, mistakes, side effects. There are people who on purpose will develop the worst AI you can think of. We don't have any way to prevent it, stop it. There is very little research on what can be done with it. Basically, the same people who are computer hackers right now, writing computer viruses, will scale to the next level of technology. Yeah, and I so think in addition mm -hmm. to the same problems, bugs and volume misalignment, you also get malicious payload, whatever that is. And mm -hmm. you are limited by how sick you are. I'm so glad you brought that up. There was actually a question I meant to ask you earlier, but forgot. So you've now answered it about your paper called the Taxonomy of Pathways to Dangerous AI. So you sketch out the eight scenarios, but that was the highest risk, I believe, the one you've just identified. All right. And uh, yeah, so we've almost been going now for 90 minutes. I think we should wrap up here. But if someone wanted to, other than reading your papers, and I believe you've written a few books, the one behind you is Artificial Superintelligence. That's, that's your major one, right? The, I can see that. Aha, uh -huh, yes. Oh, those are the two out of it. Oh, okay. So those so are that's a little good. newer that has like, mm -hmm. you know, two dozen of top researchers all contributing. There is Bostrom, there is Yudkovsky, you get oh, wow. Kurzweil, you get a lot of good people there. Artificial intelligence. Little... Sorry, just tell us. Uh, sorry, Roman, to interrupt. Tell us the title so that because of those who are just listening to the audience. Artificial intelligence, safety and security. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Great. And, then and the this other is one. a little older. This is just by me. So hopefully I'll have a new one in a year or two. And this is kind of reviewing a lot of the papers you, you talked about. 
Okay, and then what, what about for general resources or should I look for specific researchers such as you and some of the people you mentioned? If you're looking to collaborate, I'm always happy to get uh, emails from outside collaborators. I have published a lot, mostly thanks to wonderful collaborators I have. Follow me on Twitter, follow me on Facebook, don't follow me home. <laughs> I loved a lot of, yeah, you're one of the few academics, you put these kind of little jokes at the end. So in the, the boxing or the confinement problem, you know, think out of the box. I, I love these little touches. You, It's unique to read your papers for, as I said, the, the many original provocative. Uh, there is a lot of yeah. undiscovered Easter eggs in my writings. I think it'd be a ah. few years before they're found. Yeah. I should I should reread them. But uh, all right. But where else? So you've mentioned some good places. Is there anywhere else you'd like us or direct uh, listeners or viewers to finding out more about you? No, this is this is great. If you follow me on social media, I post about my work. I post about whatever happens. If I travel and give talks, you can come listen. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Roman Yapolsky. You've given so much of your time. Even You even tolerated some uh, contentious issues here. And I guess you had to field some silly questions from the unversed, non-technologically inclined or competent types, namely, namely me. But well, uh, adversarial neural networks are the cutting edge of AI research <laughs> right now. So we're just practicing here. Yes, yes. And I think you're starting to convert me on a lot of these key issues. And I think your latest paper will do, but converting me in a bad way in that now, as I said, I have more to be concerned about here. I was hoping to sort of bracket or ignore certain concerns, but if nothing else, also, I can run some of my stories by you, maybe a novel I might write on AI to see the validity considering. I'm an editor for books on AI. So if you're looking to publish your book. Oh, wow. Wow, this is this is another talk about a kind of a prize, an Easter egg in an interview here. But uh, thank you so much for giving so much of your time. It was just a delightful conversation. I learned so much. I'm sure everyone listening did. And I wish you a wonderful uh, weekend. You probably won't relax. You seem like the kind of person that will be just writing, uh, thinking, reading. Sadly, right? you're right. Thanks <laughs> for inviting me. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Roman Yapolsky. It's been a blast. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. I'd just like to remind everyone that they can support this podcast in a number of ways. These include rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, spreading the word among family and friends, and for those feeling especially generous, please consider giving a donation via Patreon. This can be done by visiting patreon.com forward slash skeptically curious. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com skeptically curious one word. Thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast, and I hope you will all keep doing so. The intro music is titled Fortitude, and that's by Lance Conrad. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.